uh, for these whom John is speaking to, whether it's Satan himself or whether it's ourselves speaking to our own hearts. This is who God has declared that we are in Christ. These folks can rest in that truth, and so can we. And so, there in verses 12 through 14, we said that that John was sort of Dr. Scott to these people. But you know, there's another way that my doctor's visits have changed. Uh, After Dr. Scott has assured me of my my pristine health, uh, he leaves, and he sends in this little lady. Now, she's a very nice lady, but, but she is a lady who says that she is there to set up for me a health care maintenance plan. Now, I want to say to this lady, did you not just hear what he said to me? He said that I was healthy, that I was a picture of health. What do you mean I need to change my diet? What do you mean I need to exercise more? What do you mean I need to drink a whole lot more water, apparently, than what I'm currently drinking? Did you not just hear what he said? Apparently she didn't hear what he said because she is very persistent that I start this maintenance plan. Now, the longer I've thought about it, obviously she is not there to undo the assurance that Dr. Scott has given me. She is there to remind me that though I may be healthy now, if I take that for granted, if I don't do the things that are there before me to to make that continue on, if I don't take advantage of the, the opportunities around me, then that could very easily change. She's, she's there to foster my health, to bring it to maturity. Now again, I tell you that because for the majority of this letter, and he's going to go back to that today, John is that lady. He is speaking to us, not as Dr. Scott, not giving us assurance, though he did that last week. For the majority of the letter, he's trying to bring his readers to full Christian maturity. And so he's giving them warnings. He's giving them things that they need to see in order to really know if they are in the faith. He wants to make sure that they know, that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so today, here in verses 15 through 17, he reminds them that they are not to love the world or the things of the world. Again, I just want to remind you, John here, he's not undoing the assurances that he gave us in verses 12 through 14. But what he's doing is he's reminding us, he's telling us, be on guard. Watch who you are. Watch your back. Watch what's happening right now in front of you, and be careful. And so, we're going to consider three things in these three verses. First, we're going to consider the command. Second, we're going to consider the examples that he gives. And then thirdly, we're going to, give, we're going to consider the warning. And all with the idea of how is it that we are supposed to approach this world. Well, with all of that in mind, let's look at this together. First, in this passage, I want you to notice the command. Uh, the command, and it's there in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, you know, on an initial reading, uh, it seems fairly straightforward, right? Uh, there's not a lot to, to kind of pick apart there, but let's just note several things by way of definition, okay? First, it's important to ask, what does John mean here? And, and Ben has helped us here already, but what does John mean by the world? You know, if you're familiar with his gospel, if you're familiar with this epistle, you know 
that he uses the term the world in a lot of different ways as he is writing. Uh, And so we need to ask, what, what does he have in mind here? Well, first, and I want you to see, I think there's two things that we need to take away from this. First, in referring to the world, John most often is speaking not so much to the creation itself, uh, not so much to the world sort of generally, uh, but to the world in its rebellion, the, the world in rebellion against God and against the things of God. Uh, you know, Paul says it in Ephesians uh, that since the fall of mankind, mankind has lived under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1 and in verse 10, Uh, John says that though Jesus had come into the world, though the light came into the world, sinful men rejected him. They rejected the light. And then in chapter 3 and in verse 1 of this same epistle, uh, he's going to say that the world does not know Christ. They don't know him. And so, in one sense, John here is speaking of what we might call worldliness. the, The wrong values, the wrong pursuits and the beliefs that are the basis of this present evil evil age. Uh, The almost single-minded desire to glorify and to satisfy oneself at the exclusion of God and most everyone else. So John says here, avoid worldliness. There's another way I think we can take this, and it's in that second little phrase, the things of the world. He says to avoid the things of the world. Now to be sure, I may be splitting hairs here, and it may not be hairs worth splitting, but I think it, I think John has in mind here the same thing that Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you remember there, and you can turn if you want to, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, but in verses 21 through 25, uh, Paul says, for although they knew God, that is all men, all of creation, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And here it is, what I'm trying to drive us to. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies and among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did they do? They worshipped and served the creature, the things of the world, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul knows, and I think John knows here, that our hearts, they can make idols even out of the, the best things that God has given us. And so, in a second sense, the command here is not only to avoid worldliness, but it is to avoid those things in the world that tend to enslave us, or maybe that threaten to enslave each one of us individually, particularly, whatever those things may be. So, the world here is both worldliness and the things in the the creation uh, that, that we put in the place of Almighty God. Next, by way of definition, let's ask, what exactly does this command entail? You know, if you've noticed, I have tried very intentionally to use the word avoid when referring to the world and the things of the world. And I do that because it's a word that uh, has enough ambiguity 
so that it sort of hides my hand. It sort of hides where I'm trying to drive us, okay? But the question that I'm asking is how exactly are we to approach the world? You know, when he says not to love it, what does that mean? Well, as you know, uh, some have taken this sort of command uh, to the extreme. And they avoid all contact with the world altogether. They live separate. They work separate. They even avoid many of the modern uh, conveniences that, that we now have, that, that we now take advantage of, maybe too often, but we have. Uh, they avoid the people of the world. I'm thinking of maybe monks, uh, maybe some of the early forms of fundamentalism and anti-Baptist. Uh, all of these sort of... Um, you have to completely pull away from the world. Some of you have seen the movie Footloose. For some reason, that's coming to my mind right now. If you know that movie, you know they can't dance, they can't sing, they can't do any of those things. They have to stay away. Well, it's sort of that same sort of thing. But notice that the issue for John here is not so much the world out there. The issue is one that is within the people's hearts. To quote the, that Pogo... Um, comic strip from many years ago, John is essentially saying here, we have seen the enemy and they are us. In verse 15, the issue is that we love the world. In verse 16, it is our desires, desires spurred on by the things of the world to be sure, but our desires that are, uh, that are the problem. That, those are the things that he's telling us to avoid. Friends, the, the commands here is not to quarantine ourselves off from the world. Uh, and I say that for two reasons. One, you know, avoiding the world will not keep us from sin. If you know Martin Luther's story, you know he tried to do this very thing. He, he became a monk in order to quarantine himself off from the world because he thought it would keep him from sinning. The problem was his sin found him where he was. He couldn't stop. So the issue was not all, necessarily all of the things out in the world. The issue was his own heart. The issue was what was going on inside of him. The second reason I say that, that the, the command here is not to avoid or completely quarantine ourselves off from the world is because if you read Scripture, what becomes obvious is that as Christians, we should be enjoying God's good gifts within the confines of what He has laid out for us as much are more than anybody else. That's right. I'm saying to you, you can dance, and you can sing, and you can enjoy a good meal or a good athletic event, but you can enjoy them all to the glory of God. You can do it as He has called you to do it. He created us to have dominion. He created us to thrive and interact within this world based off of what he has laid out. So to the degree that we can do that, we are to enjoy the world. The command, though, uh, it does require that we measure uh, how we are enjoying God's good gifts. Uh, if our enjoyment of the world is rooted in lust, or in covetedness, or, or in bitterness, or in selfishness, and friends, we have a problem then, right? If we love the things of the world, the world itself, more than we love God, then it's time to avoid those things. Now let's be sure that, that you hear what I'm trying to say here. 
your friend, the person sitting in the pew next to you right now, they may be, may be able to enjoy a certain TV show or certain music with a clear conscience. But if that same TV show or music creates in you inordinate desires, then you should, with the strength and the help and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, seek to avoid that thing. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, what is, what is Jesus calling us to there? Is he calling us to mutilation? I don't think so. He's using an extreme example to make the point that even things that, that seem to have great value to us, that have great value to us, our eyes, our hands, they should be, giving, they should be given up if they are leading us into sin. Even the most valuable things are worth letting go of if they separate us from God. Again, we recognize that apart from Christ, this type of avoidance, this type of repentance... It's not possible. But as we've said over and over and over again in John's little epistle here, part of his point is to say to us, you can do that now. Because you are in Christ, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, because you have found that pearl, that treasure of surpassing value, because the Spirit is changing your desires and your loves, you can begin to let go of these things that enslave you. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free because Christ is alive in you. Uh, Sam and I this week, actually, because of our Wednesday night study with Sinclair Ferguson, he and I were talking about verses that are misused. That, the way that, especially on social media, we take verses completely out of their context and we post them up and everybody comes to that verse and they say, man, that verse speaks to me in this way, right? It says this to me particularly. Now, verse may say that. The problem is, is it may not say that. You've got to go back to the context with that verse. I'm in danger of preaching a whole different sermon right now, so I'm going to stop right there and simply tell you that the verse Sam and I were talking about was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We write it on our basketball shoes. We write it on our eye black. We use it in all these different contexts, and it's all wrong. We have completely taken it out of the context that Paul gave it to us. But this is the context for that verse. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore because Christ is in you. He is strengthening you. and He has set you free. You can do it in Christ who gives you strength. All right, this is getting away from me here. It's secondly, quickly, because we're running out of time. Notice, we, we've seen the command. The command is do not love the world are the things in the world. Secondly, the examples that he gives. He shows us ways that we are to avoid the world. And he gives us three here on the list. But they're really, they're, they're sort of all-encompassing. First one is, is avoid the desires of the flesh. <clears throat> one commentator suggests uh, the translation 
rather than desires of the flesh, sinful bodily cravings. Now, I think our tendency, and often rightly so, is to think about sexual sin when we think of desires of the flesh. And often that is the way that Scripture uses those types of words. But here, the term is broader. Here it means more than simply just sexual sin. It covers the whole of our bodies. Uh, Martin Luther, he said, The lust of the flesh is that pleasure with which I desire to indulge my flesh, such as adultery, or fornication, or gluttony, or ease, or even sleep. Now, let's be honest. Those first two, adultery and fornication, that's what we think about when we think about the desires of the flesh, sort of what we might term gross sins. But gluttony and ease... And sleep, let's be honest, those are things that we don't just like secretly desire, that we secretly pursue, but these are the things that we openly pursue, right? We all want to make sure we're getting our eight hours in. We want to make sure that we are, are have as much ease as, maybe not eight hours for some people, but eight hours-ish. Um, we want to make sure that, that we have our ease, Right? And so my point to you is that when we talk about desires of the flesh, we may think, well, hey, it's not talking about me, friends. Actually, it is talking about every single one of us, right? Because all of us are tempted to, to ease. All of us are tempted to, to put the desires of our flesh, whatever that may be, above God. So, first, desires of the flesh. Secondly, he points us to the desires of the eyes. Now here, uh, the temptation at least begins, not within, but it begins outside of us with the things that we see. Now again, the, the issue really is our hearts because it's desires that, that are the problem, but it starts with that lustful gaze or that coveting look or that envious glance. Uh, here we might think about David with Bathsheba, right? And really we cover two here because he starts by seeking his own ease. The kings had gone to war, and what does David do? He stays at home. And while he's sitting on his rooftop, he looks and he sees Bathsheba. And he wants Bathsheba, no matter what it takes, even if it takes murdering her husband, he is going to do whatever it takes. It is the sin of his eyes, the desires of his eyes, that leads him into sin. Now again, we may think, well, this doesn't really apply to me, but friends, the whole marketing industry is built on this weakness in us. Billboards, pop-up ads, uh, TV ads, the, the whole idea of the algorithm, whatever the algorithm is, and you know more than I do, but the algorithm, all of it is there and it works because our hearts covet what they do not have. The things that we see. And so, John's encouragement here is to turn our gaze away from worldly things and to turn our gaze, as Hebrews reminds us, to the author and the finisher of our faith, who is above all and, and who is all. So, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and then thirdly, the pride of life. And friends, this one, as Americans, it, it may be the most dangerous one for us. What is the American dream? to be independent. It's to rely on oneself above all. To say, as old Blue Eyes said, I did it my way. 
No matter what place you are at the economic ladder, whether you're at the bottom or the top, the goal, it seems, is self-sufficiency. Total non-dependence on anybody. It is the Tower of Babel. Let's build this tower as high as we can and make a name for ourselves. It is the rich young ruler. I have done all of these things. I did it. It is an unwillingness to depend on God and Him alone for all we are and all we need. As Christians, Paul says that if we are to boast, we can do so only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have truly come to know Him, then we know that in and of ourselves, we are nothing. But in Him, we have everything. So our pride, it's not in our life. It's not in the things that we have done. Our pride is in our Savior. So we have the command. We have the examples. And then thirdly and finally and quickly, we have the warning. And the warning is twofold. Why, why is it that we are to avoid the world? We're going to go in reverse here. First, notice he says that the world is passing away. Avoid it because it is temporary. The things that are so real, the things that are so important to us now, friends, they, they will not last. One day, whether it's upon your death or my death, or when it's Christ returns, wh whichever one comes first, all we have accumulated, all that we have lusted after in worldly terms, will be no more. So John says, don't invest in it. Now look, I, I'm, I'm not an investor. I, don't, I, did, I do have a business degree, so I should know something about this, but I really don't. But I know that if the investment opportunity is bound to, to fail, if it is doomed from the beginning, then you're probably not going to invest in it. So let me ask you, why are we investing in the world? Do we not believe what the Bible says? Do we not believe that it is all going to pass away? Friends, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who made it all, he has said it will pass away. And so we should be investing in eternal things, his things. So avoid the world because it's passing away. And then finally, avoid the world because it is opposed to God. Verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I want to say to you, these are devastating verses. These are worldview shattering, altering sorts of verses. We and I'm putting myself in this, we put so much trust in the world around us. We put so much trust in government and in systems and in worldly pursuits. And John says that all of those things are not of the Father. That they have no part in Him. Why are we surprised that our government, from top to bottom, Republican to Democrat, is in shambles? Why are we surprised that systems let us down and are unjust, particularly towards God's people? Why are we surprised that, that the world hates us and persecutes us? Friends, we shouldn't be surprised. This present evil age hates God, it hates the things of God, and it hates the people of God. That's what he says. That's what the Word says. 
And so if we are a part of that people, why would we love it? Why, why would we depend on it? It's only going to let us down or hurt us or both. And so we approach the world with great caution. We approach the world knowing full well what it is and what it's not, and we approach it. And this is the, the key. So if you don't take anything else away, take this away. We approach it clinging and looking to Jesus. End of story. That, that we could have started the sermon with that and we could have been done. Sorry, I didn't do that. But we could have. You approach the world holding on as fastly as you can to your Savior, knowing that He is also holding fast to you. And He, according to the verse on the top of your bulletin, He has overcome the world. And friends, it is only in Him that we too will overcome the world. And so may He, as we're about to sing, may He ever be our vision, and may He ever be our love as we pray together. Father God, we ask that you would uh, help us to uh, avoid this world in the way that you call us to. Uh, Lord, there's so many things out there that seem so uh, beautiful, so enticing. Uh, and Lord, they, they pull at our hearts uh, and they threaten to overcome us because we are uh, prone to take those things and to put them in your place, to, to make them... Uh, more than, than what you are to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would remind us of the truth, uh, remind us of the temporary nature of this world, remind us that it is a world that is opposed to you, uh, but, Father, also remind us, more importantly, of your great love for us. Show us how wonderful and majestic and glorious you are, and may our hearts cling to that truth. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who has saved us, who has overcome the world. And Lord, we know that it is in him that we overcome the world as well. And so, Father, help us to cling to him even as he clings to us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.